The reading today is from 1 Samuel 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and afterward David's heart struck him. Because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also rose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. The word of the Lord. I'm not uh, making a big deal about it today, but I I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't say as a Protestant that it's, uh, you know, Reformation Sunday. 500 years ago, almost to the day. So on Tuesday, October 31st, is, is the day you know, when Martin Luther did or did not you know, nail his 95 theses to the Wittenberg Castle Church door. But I have, in honor of this day, I, have my, I, I got a mug in honor of the Reformation, the 500th anniversary. Because Martin Luther famously said when he was being tried by the Pope 
uh, uh, he said, you know, here I stand and I can do no other, basically defending what he had written. And um, I found this line, mug online with uh, Mar- another Martin Luther saying, here I stand and I can do no other, Martin Luther King Jr. So um, <laughs> whoever made this mug apparently did a Google search for Martin Luther image and just put that on the mug. So in honor of, in honor of the Reformation, my Martin Luther King Jr., here I stand, 500th anniversary mug. All right, so I just thought that was funny. I had to share it. But without further ado, let us continue on in the series that we are doing on the life of David called After God's Own Heart, because that's what Scripture says about David. God rejects Saul, and he says, I'm going to pick someone who is after my own heart, who is after God's own heart. And so there are parts of David's life where we see how this can be true, especially clearly, where we see God's heart reflected in David's life, especially in, in David's rise. And I think nowhere in David's life do we see God's heart reflected more than in 1 Samuel 24 and this incident in the cave. And it's, it's a scene when you read it in scripture, it, it sort of has all the markings of a sophomoric comedy. If Adam Sandler or, or the Farrelly brothers uh, who made, you know, Dumb and Dumber and Me, Myself and Irene, if they were going to turn a scripture passage into a movie, this would be the one that they would use because, you know, we, we've got Saul going into a cave to, uh, you know, relieve himself. The king of Israel sitting on his proverbial throne. A band of 600 rebels hiding behind him. And David with the ultimate chance to relieve Saul of his position for David to go from being number two to being number one. Okay. Hey, I, it's there in the text. What can I say? It's there in the text. This is, this is, this is... This is, uh, this is there. It's, it's a farce. It has all the makings of a farce. Saul is, is a sitting duck. And so, as we saw last week, we were at another very different cave with David. And he's hiding out. He's on the run from Saul. And so, it's at the cave that we learn some very, very important things about the kingdom of God. That in that cave, we learn that the kingdom is for outsiders and not insiders. That it comes through weakness and not through, through strength. And so here at this cave, we will learn even more about what it means to live according to the alternative values by which God's kingdom is supposed to operate. How we're supposed to live if we are living under the rule of God, right? This passage helps to answer that most important of questions, that if God is indeed in charge of our lives, if he has our hearts, if he has our loyalty, how then shall we live? David is faced with that dilemma in this cave. And there are three crucial conflicts that take place in this chapter. Three battles that David must fight if he is going to become the anointed king. Right? In, In some ways, David's anointing is something he's already received. You know, Samuel has done it when he was a young boy. He's been living from this place of being the anointed one, the you know, one who was up next his whole life. But in another way, he's growing into his anointing. He's having to grow up into someone who would be worthy to be the leader of God's people. And so in the cave, it's here in this moment that we see this growth process in action. Three crucial conflicts for living lives that reflect God's own heart. And the the conflicts are as follows. David versus his men. David versus David. And David versus Saul. David versus his men and the necessity of resisting the urge to get revenge. David versus himself and the necessity of being honest 
with ourselves and what we're capable of, and David versus Saul, where we see how can we defend ourselves when we face injustice. All right, so first, David versus his men. And so the setting for this conflict is in the back of the cave. David and his men have been on the run constantly from Saul. Saul has thrown his spear at David three times. He sent bands of soldiers to capture and kill David. Saul, even right before this, slaughtered a whole village of priests because he, expe- he, ex- he suspected that they were aiding and abetting David in his rebellion. And just a few verses before our passage this morning, Saul was, it seemed, mere inches away from capturing and killing David. But then news came of a Philistine invasion, and so he had to go back home. He'd come so close to getting David. And so at this point, Saul gets word of where David is hiding with his 600 men, and so Saul sends out this elite corps of, you know, 3,000 soldiers to capture David so that he can finish the job making sure that this last narrow escape of David would be his last. And so at this point, David is done for. He's outnumbered five to one. But then, for Saul, nature calls, and so he goes to a cave, and his luck would have it. Of all the caves in all the world, he picks the one cave where David and his men are hiding. Saul, the mighty warrior king, takes off his armor. He casts aside his weapons. He he strips down. And he sits and he leaves himself completely exposed. He is totally and utterly vulnerable at this moment in time. And it's easy to understand the reaction of David's soldiers. Which they must have mouthed in silence as they couldn't believe their luck. Saul was going to suffer for all the wicked things that he had done. He was going to get his comeuppance. And David, their leader who they had joined when his cause seemed hopeless, is about to become the king. Revenge is sweet. Right? Seeing someone get their comeuppance, it feels so good. Saul is about to be served his just desserts. And so we can understand why they urged David to kill Saul, saying, Here is the day of which the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Right? This wasn't just dumb luck. This was God giving Saul into David's hands. God keeping his word to David. There's just one small problem with what David's men are telling him. God never said that. We have no record anywhere of God telling David that he would give Saul into his hand. And so the conflict of David with his men is a test. And it's important to always keep in mind, whenever we see a test in Scripture, it's, it's a test of someone's heart. It's going to reveal what's inside there. And so this, this test is, you know, when we hear a voice urging us to seek revenge... We can be sure that this is not the voice of God because that's not how the kingdom operates. And it's crucial here to get a distinction that that we often get messed up, that, that there's a big difference between seeking justice and seeking vengeance or seeking revenge. And it's far too easy to get those two things mixed up. Because the desire for justice is not a bad thing at all. Right? Injustice 
should make you mad. Seeing people get away with doing awful things should fill you with indignation. Right, that's that whole, you know, the, the Making a Murderer miniseries that was on Netflix. When you watch that, it was not just a whodunit, but you saw this one character, Brendan Dassey. He was, he was a, a cousin or, or nephew of, of the main person who was suspected of murdering. And you see this kid who has a low IQ being bullied by the police and confessing to a crime that you know he never committed. And it just makes you angry because you see this is injustice. He didn't do it. How can people in power do this? to someone who doesn't know any better. And so injustice makes us mad, and that's good. But the thing about justice is that justice is ultimately about setting things right. It's about making things whole, as much as we possibly can, restoring this world to a state of wholeness. The Greek word that we translate as righteousness and justice, they're the same word, right? Justice and righteousness seek wholeness. But revenge is different. Revenge isn't about making whole, but it's about destroying. It's about shattering to pieces the one who has perpetrated the injustice which we have seen causing so much pain, right? Justice, it directs our anger in service of making things whole, of bringing things together. Revenge directs our anger in service of shattering and destroying. God's desire for the world is Shalom, which means wholeness, not evil, which comes from the Hebrew word ratzah, which means to break apart, to shatter. And the real danger with seeking revenge is that in the act of getting revenge, in the act of getting even, we become exactly like the thing we were seeking to destroy. If David were to kill Saul, then he would become Saul. To get revenge on Saul would be to lose his anointing just like Saul. In destroying what he despises, David would become what he despises. That's why he says in verse 6 to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. And so David stands up to his men. In verse 7 it says, David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. But this is a pretty milquetoast translation of what's happening here. Other translations say David restrained but the better word is, is that David divided. He tore them up. It's a strong word for restraint. Right? David didn't just resist their entreaties. He, he rebuked them. He courageously stood against them. He resisted the urge to get revenge because he didn't mistake their voice for God's voice. And for the desire to get revenge with the demands of justice. And so if we want to live a full-hearted life before God, we have to love justice more than we love vengeance. And it's not to be mistaken that we don't get angry about injustice. When we read the scripture, we see that if there's anything that makes God mad, it's injustice. We know God's heart for justice. But as Western enlightened people, one of the objections that, that we often hear when we're reading scripture and to the God of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, is, is that we're not comfortable with God getting angry. Right? We need a God of love and not a God of wrath. Miroslav Volf, who teaches at Yale Divinity School, um, was, he's a Croatian theologian, and he wrote what's probably the most important and influential theological work of the 1990s. It was called Exclusion and Embrace. And he says, wanting a God without wrath is a luxury. 
And so he, he comes from Croatia. And so he wrote of the atrocities that he witnessed when the former Yugoslavia broke apart. The things he had seen, rape, mass killings, beatings, abuse, terrible crimes against humanity. Deeds that cried out for vengeance. And his argument was that the only way to break this cycle of revenge is to trust in the vengeance of God. To leave the settling of scores to God. To leave the getting even to God. Otherwise, without that eternal horizon... We must take matters into our own hands. We must get mad and get even. But here in the cave, we see that in God's kingdom, there is another way forward. An understanding of divine vengeance that can empower us to seek earthly justice, that can stop us from becoming that which we seek to destroy. And this, quite honestly, this this perspective, this horizon is what I think is, is missing from so many social movements today. There's no eternal or transcendent horizon. There's no notion that, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. Richard Nixon famously said, right, two wrongs don't make a right, try three. That's our world. That's why we feel so stuck and entrenched behind these, these battle lines. But there's a way out of the cave and a cave, a cave simply means a narrow place. That's the literal translation of a cave. It's a narrow place. And think of what it feels like to be in a narrow place. You're confined. You are constrained. You are limited. The way out of the narrow place is not the way of vengeance, but the way of mercy, the way of Jesus. The way of forgiving sins, of loving enemies, of praying for those who persecute you, of going the second mile, of bearing the cross, of denying yourself, of costly discipleship that's how you leave the narrow place because here's the truth which which leads us to our second confrontation david versus himself well we might overestimate the wickedness of our enemies we underestimate our own capacity for evil and injustice and that's the second thing that david is confronted with in the cave the evil that is in his own heart Right, so he hears his men telling him to take Saul's life, and so David sneaks up on Saul's robe, and he, and he cuts off this corner. And, and immediately, there's this, this twinge of pain in his conscience. He feels the guilt. We read this, we think, oh, big deal. He just cut off a corner of his robe. He didn't kill him. And first of all, I, I imagine that as David was sneaking up, he wasn't exactly sure what he was going to do in that moment, what he was going to do with that sword. And so he had not made up his mind. And maybe he had made up his mind. But, but there was something as he approached Saul that he was not sure what he was going to do. And it was only at the last second that he clipped his robe. And secondly, to cut someone's robe, this was a deeply humiliating act, right? The king's robe was in some ways a part of his person. Your clothes were invested with your authority and your office. That's why when... Uh, Saul was being told that he had lost God's anointing and the kingdom would be torn from him. It was a powerful act when Samuel tore his robe. He said, just as your robe got tore, the kingdom will be torn from you. And that's why it was so powerful when David was going to go into battle with Goliath that Saul said, you can wear my armor. It's not just that David needed some armor, but he was going into battle with the authority representing the king. Right? You are what you wear in Scripture. Jonathan gave David his armor, saying, we're not just, you know, two different people, but we're brothers, we're friends. And so cutting off this robe was was a way for David to harm Saul. 
It was an act of rebellion. You know, later in the passage, David says, I'm no rebel, but in this moment, he almost is. But what's so interesting is immediately after David cuts the robe, it says that David's heart struck him. But the King James is so much better here. It says David's heart smote him. David's own heart smote him. In that moment, David was confronted with his own capacity for evil. And he recognized that his anointing is not just threatened by, you know, forces out there that he can't control, but that evil lurked in his own heart. At this moment, David realizes his own capacity for doing bad things, that he is not immune from the danger of becoming another Saul. The Russian dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Right? The road to hell begins with the sentiment. I could never do that. I'm not capable of that. Right? And in, in the church, you hear stories from denominational officials who have to deal with moral failings from their pastors. And the stories almost always begin with a pastor underestimating his or her own capacity to sin. Right? I won't have an affair. I couldn't do that. I'm a good person. I, I can't be an alcoholic. I, I'm a pastor. I'm a good person. That's a lie that we must confront again and again if we are to live full-heartedly before God. If we want to emerge from the cave, if we want to leave the narrow place, we've got to acknowledge our own capacity for sin. That the biggest threats to us aren't out there, but in here. First John, beautiful passage in Scripture, it says, you know, and it's honest. It says, if we, deceive, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We're telling ourselves a lie. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we want to get right with the Lord, we've got to get real about what we're capable of. And when we see a brother or sister stumble or fall, it should not fill us with some smug sense of superiority or schadenfreude, right? Instead, it ought to be a reminder, there but for the grace of God go I. So the first conflict is David versus his men, right? They need to seek justice without getting revenge. The second conflict is David versus himself. They need to be honest about his own capacity to fall into sin. And then we get to the third and final conflict which is David versus Saul, which teaches us how do we defend ourselves when faced with false and unfair accusations. That's one of the worst things in the world, right? To, to be falsely accused of something or, or unfairly have your motivations maligned and impinged upon. Our natural inclination is, is to defend ourselves, and that's good. The question is, how do we do that? I think David's story here has some serious insights into that. Because Saul has falsely accused David of rebelling against him, of wronging him, of seeking to steal what is rightfully his. And in this extended speech, David, he does four things that I think show us what we can do to defend ourselves. 
And the first thing that David does is he steps out of the cave. Right? He's cut off Saul's robe, but Saul doesn't realize it. He finishes doing his business, and then he's going to you know, continue this search mission for David. So David could have said, narrow escape. But David steps out of the cave. He stops hiding. He steps into the light. The text says that he arose. And in the Bible, when we hear someone rising up or standing up, it means they're going to take some decisive action. And that's the hardest part about defending yourself is stepping out from the shadows, right? We can't defend ourselves without courageously stepping into the light. And, and this is the most important step, but it's also, honestly, it's, it's the hardest. It's totally the hardest. Right, we've seen it, the, 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 the social media campaign. Um, I think that's still ongoing, this Me Too hashtag talking about the experience of mainly, you know, of women in light of Harvey Weinstein and decades of sexual harassment. We're seeing how pervasive that is. But it was an open secret for decades and decades, and it remained a secret because he was so powerful. And so many people have, have experienced that, and they felt alone. So many women have felt alone, that people wouldn't believe them. And so they remained in the shadows. And the story burst the floodgates, and to a degree, it, there's a lot of people stepping out of the shadows now. But there's also a lot of people who aren't. You know, and I think of some of the people I know who have experienced the worst forms of, of what's being reported, and, and they're not stepping up because it's too painful to do that. And they said, no one stood beside me then, so how am I going to trust that people are going to stand beside me now? And stepping out hurts because the light doesn't just reveal, right? It, it exposes. It's a heavy burden to bear, especially by yourself, right? You can be step out into the light and be told, go back in the cave, and it's sometimes by the same people, you know, who I see liking the statuses of, of women sharing their Me Too stories, the same people who before in their life said, get, get back in there. Go back in the shadows. And that happens and it just fills me with this desire for vengeance. So stepping out into the light when the time is right and a willingness to stand beside people who have stepped out into the light. It's just, just as important. So David steps out into the light. And then he appeals to this shared authority that he and Saul share. And if you don't have a shared authority that you can appeal to with someone, it's almost useless to try to defend yourself to them. But David knows, he trusts that he has that with Saul. And so he says in verse 12, May the Lord judge between you and me. In order to defend ourselves, we need a shared authority, something higher than either person that they can appeal to and point to, that both people have submitted themselves to and respect. Right? Without this shared higher authority, self-defense isn't possible. And the next thing that David does is he appeals to their shared values. Right? Common respect for God's anointing. In verse 11, David says, I said, I shall not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. So they share this core value of respect for who God has chosen and what he has done. And the last thing that David does is he appeals to his actions. He says, Saul, because we have the same authority and we have the same values, here is why I did what I did. This is why, even though I could have killed you, I didn't. And these are all the elements that go into to defending oneself. Stepping out into the shadows, appealing to shared authority and shared values, and appealing to our actions. And if we can do that with someone, we can 
defend ourselves. It's not easy, but we can. And if we don't have those ingredients there, we can't. And we cannot guarantee the response or the outcome. David could have invited a slaughter right there. But doing what David did, it will allow us to live free from the constraints that come with hiding. It will allow us to live full-heartedly before God and other people. It will, it will allow us to leave the narrow place and enter the kingdom. Because, brothers and sisters, it's, it's at the cave last week and this week that we learn about the kingdom. And it's the kingdom not just of David, but the kingdom to which David's kingdom points, of which his rule is but a pale shadow. A kingdom of justice without vengeance, where God pours out his own anger at sin upon himself on the cross. A kingdom where our hearts are exposed for the brokenness they contain so that they might be healed by the grace of Jesus Christ. Right? Christ's heart was broken so that ours might be healed. A kingdom where we stand upon the righteousness of Christ to defend us from unfair accusations and false impunging of our motives, where it's not just us being defensive but us appealing to Christ to be our protector and defender. Because God doesn't want us to live in the narrow place, but he wants us to leave for the wide country of his mercy. He wants us to be people who are about the business of bringing together, not tearing apart. And on this Sunday, almost 500 years to the day when the Protestant Reformation began, right? This watchword was justification by faith alone. In what light can we stand and be called righteous by a holy God? Well, it's only when we stand upon the ground of Christ, the ground of the righteousness of Christ, the one who was buried in a cave for three days but couldn't be kept inside and who burst forth into the light offering new life to all who would trust in him. To get the kingdom, we've got to leave the cave behind and enter into the resurrection life of Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, please pray with me.